Our Old Testament reading comes from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28, starting in verse 10, we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you... And your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat clothing and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. Thus far the reading of God's word. Our sermon text is from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. This is God's word. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Our great God, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word uh, shall never pass away. Uh, Your word abideth still. 
Your words are pure words, tried as silver in a furnace, seven times over. Again and again, your word has been tried again and again. Lord, it has proved itself sure, for you are sure. You are true. You are faithful. And we give you thanks for who you are as the one who speaks, as the true God, as the God who makes covenants, as the God who promises, and as the God who is faithful to his promises. So we ask even now, Lord, that you would be pleased uh, to speak, to build us up in truth, to fill our hearts with delight at our King, the true and faithful witness. Continue to shape us in his image and likeness such that we delight in truth, that your word is our delight, that true words are our delight. As you teach us, to follow after Christ in faithfulness as the one who was faithful even unto death. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would do these things for the sake of your name and for our good. For we ask in Christ, amen. Uh, there are words that I have spoken that have literally changed my life. When I stood before God and man, and the minister said to me, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? I didn't say much. <laughs> I said, essentially, yes. And everything changed. <laughs> With a word, or I guess a couple of words, Samantha and I entered into what was, for all intents and purposes, a, a new world. Our words opened the door to a completely different existence. As God's word says, the two shall become one flesh. Words are powerful, or at least they can be. And to some degree or another, most of you have had a similar experience. We had an ordination here not so long ago where ordination vows were taken, where a couple of words opened up a whole new mode of experience for a man and his family. You take membership vows where you utter a couple of words and then a new contour of existence opens up. Many of you have taken marriage vows. You could probably add others to this list where few words are uttered and yet massive change ensues. You say something, you mean it, and you strive to live faithfully according to it by God's grace. I want to ask you something. What is the difference between the I will promise I said on my wedding day and the I will promise I say to my children when they ask me if we can go to Connie's Cone after dinner on a particularly pleasant summer? Or if my wife asks me to get the laundry when I'm downstairs and I say, in essence, I do. <laughs> well, we say one of them is of massive importance and the other is of minor importance. To enter into the solemnity of marriage, the solemnity of ordination, the solemnity of church membership versus picking up ice cream, well, there's a world of difference between those two things. 
They shouldn't even be compared. And that's right from a certain angle. To break a marriage vow, to break an ordination vow, and to break a promise to pick up ice cream, they have dramatically different consequences, don't they? We felt this difference before, even in the Sermon on the Mount. Committing adultery, committing murder have dramatically different practical consequences than the lust of the heart or hatred in the heart. But we're not deceived by that anymore, are we? Not at this point in the sermon. And so from that other angle, we say there's really no difference at all when it comes to the heart of the matter. The same word is uttered. Yes, I will. And the same expectation of truth and faithfulness to that word govern both situations. The same expectation and requirement that sits over the marriage vow sits over the word about Connie's cone. (laughs) From this angle, just because there's different consequences, it does not mean there are different standards. As if truth and faithfulness is required in one and negotiable in the other. But that's the sinful and foolish heart, isn't it? That's the heart of the flesh that the Lord is exposing in these verses. Hearts that are looking to insinuate its own, let's say, relationship to truth into all circumstances. Its own, let's say, faithfulness of convenience into all circumstances. Mark, if this isn't true of your own heart, if you don't have this sort of relationship of convenience with truth, if you don't have this sort of relationship of convenience with faithfulness, I promise to help you move. And then the day comes and all of a sudden, you know, my back isn't great after all. There's a whole bevy of excuses that I have at my disposal to get me out of the thing that I said I would do. We're excuse factories to splice this topic into John Calvin's famous phrase, our hearts being idle factories. We're excuse factories. Our unfaithfulness, our convenient relationship to truth is always justified because we're just as good at self-deception as we are at deception of others. The Lord commends to us a remarkably simple standard, doesn't he? Simple honesty and integrity in all of our words. (laughs) Stop with the games. Stop with the lawyer tricks. Stop with the self-deception. Mean what you say, do what you say. End of story. More than that, well, it shows just how influenced by the evil one we really are. And he says this not as one who stands on the outside and dictates the rules of a game in which he's not involved. He says this as the one who is faithful and true. He says this as the Psalm 15 man who has sworn to his own hurt. For the oath that he took 
to be our mediator resulted not in his convenience, but rather his death on the cross, whereby his truthfulness, his faithfulness, indeed God's truthfulness and faithfulness have been demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt, such that his words can quite literally be the foundation upon which we build our lives because he's faithful and true. So let's consider our words in the kingdom of the king who is faithful and true. First, let's mark the problem. Look at verses 33 and 34. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Now, before we go into this, I should make a note on terminology. Oaths and vows are similar. You swore to both of them. Speaking roughly, in an oath, one swears to the truth of a statement. In a vow, one swears to the truth of a promise. So you swear an oath in court. What I testify is true. And you make a vow at a wedding. I swear I will do what I'm saying I'm going to do. But in both, you have a solemn assertion of truthfulness and faithfulness. All of that comes together in swearing. So first, what's the problem? We have to say what the problem is not before we say what the problem is. The problem is not oaths and vows per se. God has provided oaths and vows. He's given specific instructions how they're to be orchestrated, how they're to be approached, what matters they govern. They're from Him. But hearing the Lord teach, I say to you, do not take an oath at all. You can understand why some people have read these verses have, and have concluded that this is an absolute ban on oaths and vows. And so we can ask that. Is this something that is absolutely forbidden? And it's of practical interest to us, as I already alluded to in the introduction. Was I wrong to take my wedding vows? To call God as a witness to what I was saying to do? Was I sinning in my ordination vows? To call God as a witness what I was embarking upon? Are we forcing you to sin in your membership vows? Or more broadly, are you sinning by having a mortgage? Are you sinning by having a lease? Those are solemn vows to repay or pay, aren't they? What about your cell phone contracts? Your insurance policies? Anywhere you've signed on the dotted line begins to approach what would qualify as an oath or a vow? Are you sinning by serving as a juror or as a witness in a court of law? Are Christians forbidden from holding office because one is required to take an oath or a vow to enter such a calling? And so on and so forth. While oaths and vows are not such a common part of our day-to-day -day life, they are frequent enough to force this question. Are we sinning by just 
living as citizens in this world, striving to be upright in our dealings? Now, the universal answer in the Reformed tradition is no, 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 you're not. There are, and there ever will, as far as this world is concerned, continue to be what are called just occasions for oaths and vows. That's how Westminster Confession, chapter two, 22, puts it. And the reason we conclude this in the face of what seems like such a plain and easy statement, right? I say to you, don't swear oaths at all. Don't swear at all. Just don't do it. Well, how can we understand the Lord's words in any other way? It seems to admit of no other interpretation. Well, here are some of the reasons why. First, the, lo- the moral law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, requires true witness bearing. It requires not taking the Lord's name in vain, which immediately applies to oaths and vows. So certainly the Lord Jesus isn't removing the third and the ninth commandment in what he's teaching here. Second, the Lord himself testifies under oath in Matthew 26. When he's before his court, he says nothing, he says nothing, and then the high priest says, I adjure you by the true and living God, tell us, are you the Christ? And then he speaks. He gives weight credence to that oath invoked in the true and living on the bears true witness to himself under oath beyond matthew's gospel we see paul swearing an oath in galatians 1 in romans 9 and elsewhere he places timothy under oath i adjure you by the true and living god and the elect angels preach the word that is a solemn oath under which paul places timothy Fourth, God himself swears an oath. Hebrews 6, since there's no one greater by whom God can swear, he swore by himself such that his word is established beyond shadow of a doubt. And most strikingly, fifth, the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount is not interested in constructing easy righteousness for us. Simply not taking an oath, not taking a vow, that's easy righteousness. He's not interested in setting up just another thing for us not to do. We've seen time and time again, he's interested in what? Exposing our hearts. Not building for us easy righteousness. Nobody's going to come before him on that great day and say, Lord, Lord, I didn't take a vow. I never took an oath. He's going to say, that's not the point. That wasn't what I was teaching. You didn't hear me. And so for these reasons, among others, we conclude it's not oaths and vows that are the problem. There are just circumstances where solemn words are warranted. Samantha needed a little bit of assurance when she was going to build a life with me. Seems remarkably fitting to call God as witness in those situations. The church rightfully receives assurance as a minister embarks upon the care of your eternal souls. Those are moments of weight, meaning, solemnity. It's a good warning for us. We're going to talk about oaths and vows in a minute, but I mean just the interpretive principle 
that something so plain, seemingly so plain, actually is doing something different than what it seems at first glance. It's a warning against imbalance. It's a warning against a hypersimplification. It's a warning to neglect the whole of God's word for one little sliver. Our hearts are excellent. Excellent is seizing upon one part to the neglect of the whole just to advance our own wrong understanding. This is why we preach the whole counsel of God. This is why we plead with the Lord for that meekness and humility of heart, not to impose our understanding upon Scripture, but to receive from the Spirit's instruction in the light of the whole of God's Word. I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. We pray for that posture of heart which James enjoins upon us, receiving the implanted Word with meekness. May He grant us all that humble meek, teachable frame as we come to his word. So that's not the problem. The problem isn't oaths and vows per se. So what is the problem? Well, it seems that there's a number of different aspects to it. First, the sheer frequency of oaths and vows seems to be part of the problem. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. People are swearing by heaven, swearing by earth, swearing by Jerusalem, swearing by their head. You read Matthew 23, you learn further. People are swearing by the altar, swearing by the grift of the altar, swearing by the temple, swearing by the gold of the temple. It's like, whoa, that's a lot of swearing. It's just every day, like, you're just peppering your day-to-day interaction with these oaths and vows. You read God's instructions on oaths and vows in the Old Testament, and it was to be the exception, not the norm. These were occasional instances, not daily currency. And it's worth pointing out, because the Lord is going to indict the generation which heard him for their foolishness. And one of the hallmarks of foolishness is an inability to recognize what's appropriate at a given time. Is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 11. To what shall I compare this generation? You heard the flute, you wouldn't dance. You heard the funeral song, you wouldn't mourn. You can read the skies, but not the times. What does he mean by this? You're acting inappropriately at every turn. You're the fool who wears a clown costume to his wedding. You're the fool who wears swimming trunks to a funeral. You swear an oath. You make a vow when there's absolutely no need for it. It's utterly inappropriate. It's absurd to call heaven to witness to your promise to help your friend move. It's absurd to call down the curses of heaven as you verify the truth of the latest fad diet. Mm. Stake my reputation on it. This will work. Go keto. That's what we do. It's ridiculous to make these things so weighty, which are otherwise of relative inconsequence. 
This brings us to that consistent call of Scripture to let your words be few, to be slow to speak. With the multiplication of words, sin is not lacking, teaches Solomon. Who can bridle the tongue, James asks. No one left to themselves. We can marvel at our king in this regard. We've commented on this before. He only ever spoke true words, and he only ever spoke fitting words, appropriate words. He knew when to speak. He knew when to be silent. He knew what each hearer needed. He knew when words of comfort were needed. He knew when challenge was needed. He knew when the lament over Jerusalem was appropriate because a hardness of heart had demonstrated itself beyond a shadow of a doubt. He knew when a rebuke was necessary. He could tell the difference between the Pharisees testing him and someone sincerely inquiring of him, and he issued the appropriate word for both. Mark our need in this area. Mark how little discretion we have. Every new piece of news comes across. We're like, this is the end of the world. This is the issue to end all issues. We have no discretion. No discretion. We have no innate ability to discern between what's weighty and what's trivial. Consider our theological controversies. How much discernment is necessary there? What strikes at the vitals of true religion? And where's their liberty of conscience? Didn't the whole COVID debacle show that we were utter fools in this regard? Lacking this ability at a pretty basic level to discern where there was true liberty, where something struck at the vital, how to afford each, that we lack discernment. Do you feel it? I hope you feel it. Do you feel it? Oh, feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Because the church suffers because of it, does it not? Blow these things out of proportion. Don't afford somebody liberty where they're due liberty. Make something that's a minor issue into a major issue. What do you do? You tear down a church. That's what you do. Feel your need for discernment. Marvel at the one who is supremely discerning because he is the very wisdom of God. And then flee to him because he gives of that wisdom. Frequency and folly is one of the problems. Second, what they're swearing by seems to be another one of the problems. Swearing by heaven, swearing by earth, swearing by Jerusalem, swearing by my head. How does Christ correct them there? When he tells them, he's like, what are you doing swearing by heaven? It's the throne of God. What are you doing swearing by earth? It's his footstool. What are you doing swearing by Jerusalem? It's the city of the great king. What are you doing swearing by your head? You don't own it. He's saying the very fact that these things suggest themselves as legitimate witnesses proves that you know the one you're really swearing by is God. God is the only one who can search the heart. God is the only one who can know the truth of a matter. God is the only one who can visit the sin of deceit and unfaithfulness upon the heart. To swear by these other things robs God of his glory. What's Jerusalem going to do if I'm not faithful? Nothing. 
What's my head going to do if I sneak a lie into what otherwise should be true? It's going to be complicit in the crime, actually. (laughs) The only one we swear by is the true and living God on those occasions, just occasions, where an oath or a vow can be taken. We do it as those who fear God. We do it as those who know that even if someone escapes man's justice, we don't escape God's justice. God's justice is unassailable. And the cross demonstrates that, does it not? The cross removes the deception that every heart entertains, namely that God's justice can be mocked, that sinners will not be punished. No, God will visit sin upon the heads of all those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that because we've been saved from that lie, the lie that God is not just. We've been ushered into the one who has borne our sins such that we truly fear God in all of our dealings, knowing that our lives are open and manifest before him. The frequency is the problem. What they're swearing by is the problem. But then this sort of lawyer-like behavior with oaths is the problem. That wasn't very elegantly put, eloquently put, or elegantly put. (laughs) Words matter. What seemed to be happening here is that the reason why different witnesses were called to bear was because that kind of created some room when it came time to pay the piper, as it were. If you swore by the name of the true and living God, we were bound by it, beyond a shadow of a doubt. If you swore by Jerusalem, it's like, well, maybe I'm bound by it, maybe I'm not bound by it. Like, you know, words matter. That seemed to be what was going on here. Jesus indicates that this was the situation in Matthew 23. You say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. The situation seemed to be, you promised something, and then you had second thoughts. So you went to consult the authorities. And instead of saying, hey, do what you said... They said, well, let's see if we can get you out of this. (laughs) Maybe we can twist your words so that you don't got to do the thing that you're going to do. Through this hierarchy of bindingness that had been created by this differentiation in witnesses. Quite frankly, that's diabolical. That's what he says here. It proceeds from evil. Perhaps the evil one would be better. Who's a master at manipulating words? Who's a master in taking one thing and then sleight of handing it so that it means something completely different? You're not going to die. Your eyes will be opened. And then what happened? Their eyes were opened. And they didn't die. Did he lie? Well, that's some crazy sleight of hand. Because <laughs> I kind of got the thing that he said I was going to get, but it's not what I thought I was going to get at all. Isn't that the deceitfulness of sin? It's going to be amazing. Oh, it's going to be amazing. Just 
take it. It's going it's to be amazing. It'll satisfy you. And I promise it'll last. It'll last. Sin always over-promises, under-delivers. Always. 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 The one subsidizing that trajectory, the liar, the father of lies, liar from the beginning, over-promises, under-delivers. What they were teaching people to do, under-deliver on your promise. Diabolical. The Lord does away with all of it. He prescribes the cure, as it were. <laughs> mean what you say, do what you say. <laughs> That's how he closes the instruction, right? He doesn't just diagnose, he instructs. What characterizes the kingdom of this king? What characterizes our speech? What characterizes our actions? It's so simple and yet so difficult to our simple, our sinful hearts. Honesty and integrity. <laughs> Truth and faithfulness. Not this game playing with words. Not this constant lawyering of everything that I say so that I can get off scot-free. Mean what you say, do what you say. And you could probably add to that, let your words be few. <laughs> That kind of comes forth, right? Let what you say be simply yes or no. So we're not talking much. Now, be hard-pressed to make this literally the only things you can say. I've been sinning for 30 minutes now. <laughs> you get the point. <laughs> simply mean what you say and don't say that much. The sophists multiply words. They can talk you into a quandary where you're like believing something, agreeing with something. You don't even know how you got there because the words had so confused things. Like, I think this guy really knows what he's talking about, but he doesn't really know what he's talking about. He's just saying a lot of things. The Lord's going to pick up on this when he instructs us how to pray. Don't multiply your words. Is that about the multiplication of words? You're not going to coerce God in doing something by multiplication of words. You're not going to coerce others into doing something by the multiplication of words. Simple, true words. That's it. So that means if you're not sure if something is true, don't pretend like you're sure. We do that a lot. If you don't know that you're going to be able to do something, don't promise to do it. If you do promise to do something, do it. <laughs> It's governed so much of our life. It's so simple, isn't it? Pay your mortgages on time. Pay your rent on time. Render an honest day's work to your employer. These are all solemn arrangements into which you've entered in, which you then fulfill as one who is before the Lord. If you haven't done it, seek his forgiveness. Perhaps seek the forgiveness of the one from whom you've withheld what you owe. Jesus says, anything more than this, let your words be few, mean what you say, do what you say. Anything more than that is from the evil one. But that also means what? Well, that truthfulness and faithfulness is from the good one. From the one who is true and faithful. 
Paul instructs the life of the church in terms and instructions that are very similar. Ephesians 4.24, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. So simple. So simple. And yet, so rare. We speak so that we'll be liked. We speak to tickle ears. We speak so that people will think better of us than we really are. All of which is what? Speaking as those who fear man. (laughs) Whose primary audience is man. Paul says that's not who you are, church. You've been rescued from that stage. And you've been placed on a better stage altogether. We read in Colossians, you've been rescued from darkness. You've been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's what he means here, having put away falsehood. What does that mean? It means that the truth of the gospel has saved us from lies. The lies upon which we had built our life formerly. They're various, but they have one thing in common. Namely, that they led us to worship creation and not the creator. That's what all lies do. He says, you've been rescued from that. The truth of the gospel has rescued you from that. The way the truth and the life has rescued you from that. The way the truth and the life is teaching you to put away deceitfulness, false dealings. Because why? The truth sets you free. The truth of the gospel sets us free. The spirit of truth leads us in the way of freedom. And the one who is faithful and true is teaching us to delight in truth and faithfulness. Because in this, the excellencies of our God is seen. In his providence, once more, Old Testament and New Testament readings aligned. We saw the God who made promises. Genesis 28, what did he say to Jacob? In you, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Thousands of years ago, he made that promise. And in the fullness of time, he acted on that promise. Not because he's slow, but because all of his ways are perfect. All of his ways are wise. As one pastor put it, we have a God who makes promises and a God who keeps promises, a God whose word is true and whose faithfulness to that word is unassailable, such that the Lord Jesus Christ can close this sermon saying, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I'm very grateful that Sam took a flyer on my word and literally built her life around it. But it was a bit of a risk. God's word has been proved sure time and time and time and time and time and time again from the beginning of time until the end of time such that you are no fool to build your life upon it. The risk is not, is it true? Will he be faithful? If you perceive risk, it's due to our sin which would have us disbelieve the truth of his word 
have us disbelieve his great faithfulness. Beloved, he is faithful and true. It's one of the loveliest titles that John uses for Christ in the book of Revelation, the end of all things. When Christ reappears on the stage of history, I'm not sure if it'll be a literal white horse or if it's just nobility in general, not a donkey anymore. It's a white horse. It seems like glory and honor. It's probably not a literal white horse. Although I'm not going to rule it out because that'd be pretty cool. (laughs) But either way, who is the one on the white horse? I'll read it just so I get the title exactly right. It's Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. The Lord Jesus Christ. The promise that he's coming back for us. The promise that you've been welcomed as children of God because of his blood. The promise that you'll be openly vindicated on the day of glory. When he returns, we'll say, ah, faithful and true. All of his words, faithful and true. May God be praised. Beloved, build your lives upon his word. He's faithful and true. Let's pray. Almighty God, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. How great is your faithfulness. You've proved yourself o'er and o'er again. Such that each generation has just cause to declare, great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Your steadfast love shall never end. Build us up, O Lord, in this assurance of your faithfulness. Teach us to love truth. Teach us the beauty of that simple integrity whereby we mean what we say and we do what we say. And in this, Lord, may we image more and more the excellencies of the beloved Son, the one who is faithful and true. For we ask in his name, amen.